Okay, thank you for that. And uh, I too, along with Phil and the rest of the staff, would like to say welcome and thank you for joining us this morning. Um, this morning we're going to start with a little bit different type of prayer that I'm going to walk you through, usher you through, but to set that up, if you've ever heard me speak over the last couple of years, I have run across a quote that has become one of my all-time favorites, and we're going to put that quote into uh, practice, and it's by Jill Briscoe, and it's a quote that says this, and I've encouraged us in the past, it says this, when you sit on the steps of your soul where no one else dares to go and to have a conversation with Jesus. And that's exactly how we're going to start because it's been interesting for me over the last week in particular to kind of watch a little bit of Facebook, have a few conversations at work, a few conversations even at uh, church on Christmas Eve. It's been interesting because it seems like the one word that seems to come up in a lot of conversations, a lot of Facebook posts, is people just seem to be weary. There's just a little bit of tide, and there's a lot of different things, I think, that have brought that on. And sometimes, I think we just need to slow ourselves down and to have some conversations with Jesus. So in a prayerful manner, would you close your eyes and join me in prayer? The type of prayer that we're going to be doing this morning is called an examine. And really what we're gonna do is we're gonna step back, step by step over the last 24 to 48 hours of your life. And I want you to examine and have a conversation with Jesus. We're gonna talk to him and we're gonna just pray with him. We're gonna see what a journey is like when you go with God, rather than just living life and then occasionally bringing him up to date on what happens to be going on in your life. Will you pray with me? Father, here we are. Some of us know exactly this morning, exactly where we are. Some of the rest of us, not so much. We don't know where we're at in life. But either way, Lord, here we are, sitting with you. Hear the prayer of our hearts. This morning as you sit here with us, if you're content, if you've got joy bubbling up in your heart, just thank him for that. If you're at the other side of the spectrum, if you're sad, if you're grieving, if you're unsure, just be honest with him. This morning, can you hear Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary, and burden from the hustle and bustle surrounding my, the celebration of my birthday. Let's go back in our morning just a little bit. Let's go back to the moment that you arrived just a few moments ago here at church. What was your attitude as you walked into church this morning? Just between you and the Lord. Let's be honest, because sometimes I know when I've come to church, my attitude has not been the greatest. Were you looking forward to a worship time? Were you expectantly looking forward to spending time worshiping and praising and being with your church family? Or is this just what you've always done? 
Just another thing to check off on an already busy weekend of activity. Talk to the Lord about that. How about your drive or the walk here? Did you listen to anything? Did you talk to anyone? What'd you talk about? How are you toward your kids? Kids, how did you treat your parents? Were your words sharp or were they a blessing? Know that the Lord was with you. Talk to him about the drive or the walk here. Did you eat breakfast this morning? Did you cook it? Did anyone say thank you for that? Did someone get you your breakfast? Did you show any appreciation? Did you eat with anyone? What was that time like? Did you have any conversation or was it just hurried and rushed? Were you able to share just a few moments of life? Talk to the Lord about that part of your day. How did that go? How about when you woke up this morning? Did you wake up naturally or did you have an alarm go off? Did you feel rested or still exhausted from all the activities? Let's be honest. Did you wake up a little bit crabby? Or are you just overflowing with joy that everything that this season and family can bring? Bring all those things to Jesus. How about if we go back even a little bit farther to yesterday? How was your Christmas day? Did you get to spend it with family? Was it a blessing and a rich time of love and laughter? Or, if you're honest, was it just plain old lonely? Did you miss someone that maybe God took home from you over the past year? Are you just ready to be done with all this? Go back to some sense of normalcy and routine. Talk to Jesus. Did you take any time yesterday just to praise him? To say thank you for what he's done? Have the Christmas holidays met your expectations? Did someone let you down? Or maybe did you let someone else down? Bring those things to Jesus too. Share what's on your heart. Just share with Jesus. Sit on the steps of your soul where no one else dares to go and share with Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we can look at our lives that you want us to look 
at our lives with you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you have your way in us. And now I invite you to pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught his friends and family to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. I know that was a little bit different, and for some that maybe is even a little bit awkward, the long silence, but thank you for that. I encourage you to think about praying that way moving forward. Today is kind of an interesting day. I've been joking with Kevin and some of the other teaching team. A year ago, I sat as Phil presented the sermon on the Sunday after, and I said, whew, man, that's tough, because everybody's just tired, not really sure they want to be here. And I said, lo and behold, look who got scheduled to be on the Sunday after. (laughs) I'm going to have to be more specific with my prayers, it seems, as I move forward. But I am excited. In fact, the hat that I want to put on today and you're going to maybe hear, and maybe some of you will, some of you I know I coach. I'm going to put on a coach's hat. Some of you maybe know, some of you maybe don't know. Years ago, a whole different life ago, it almost seems like, I was a girls basketball coach. In fact, our own dear Katie Peterson, then Katie Banstra, was one of the players that used to play for me. The good news is nobody's running sprints today. We all ate too much fudge for that. Christy, you're smiling. Yeah, there's a few that remember those days after Christmas. But I really just want to encourage you because I feel like, as I said when I started, I feel like as a family, as a community, it seems like we just need to be lifted up. We just need to kind of refocus. So I don't know if you want to think about this as the halftime talk. This is the game that we don't know when the end is coming. So we just need a little propping up and a little bit of encouragement. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I'm going to encourage you this morning. We're going to read from Matthew 2. If you brought your Bibles or your phone or your device or whatever that is, we're going to read the story from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And I also got a joke a little bit. A couple weeks ago at the 8 o'clock service, I was struggling to read my Bible because I'm starting that process of getting a little bit of, well, some things have to happen in the next few years. So I gave myself a Christmas gift. I gave, if, if you're an Andy Griffith fan, I gave myself a preaching Bible that some of you can probably read it from there. It's, <laughs> it's nice big letters. It was about, it got about one chapter per page. That's about all we get. So, so if I'm turning pages fast, it's just because you know I got the size of font that's about like this. So I'm glad of that. So Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called the, together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where's the Messiah? Where the Messiah, excuse me, was to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, it's... it's Kind of interesting as I've looked at this, and a couple weeks ago, again, I've been preaching on some of the Luke uh, passages about the birth of Jesus. And if you think about, generally speaking, if you think Luke's account was all about Jesus being a servant, you could probably summarize Matthew's gospel as being about Jesus as a king. Starting with the lineage and the, you know, the chapter we all skip over, let's be honest, chapter one where we kind of read through. It's all about setting up, setting the stage for him being the king of the Jews. So if we look at, and what I hope to do today is just kind of go through almost verse by verse and just kind of look at some things and highlight some things and get us to what I think is the main gist of this passage for us today. And if we look at verse one and two, and it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know, it's interesting, Magi, listening again to Phil, and you've all been to probably many different uh, Christmas stories or Christmas services, and you, you know, there's a lot of different discussion that we can have about the Magi, who they were, how many they were, uh, you know, where'd they come from, all kinds of different things. There's, you know, so Magi, here's a couple things we know. Magi can be translated as wise men. We all know that. That's kind of, we sing about wise men. We talk about wise men. We see wise men, you know, in our Christmas card. But there is just a little bit of mystery about them. So they're not just wise men in the general sense of being wise. They were known to be astrologers, or at least that's what a lot of people feel like, astrologers, astronomers, again, some discussion about what that is. We don't know for sure that there were three, but I don't want to miss anybody's favorite Christmas carol up, so we're going to just say that there were probably more than three, or at least, at the very least, they were part of an entourage that when it arrived, it caused some great chaos in Jerusalem. So here's one of the things that I think I want us to kind of picture in a fun sort of way is that these guys, they're not just some group of nerds that's kind of hanging around and they're a part of a stargazing club. I think you need to know that these were more than likely some high-ranking officials. They had some power and influence from where they came from. They were probably very well respected. And as I said, they more than likely traveled in a caravan which may have included servants and soldiers and the whole nine yards. In my Bible, as we move forward, so that's kind of set the stage. You got the king and you got, uh, you got the magi coming. And in my Bible, in the footnotes, underneath verse, well, right after one, verse two it says, Numbers 24. 
And, and it's kind of interesting. So if you got your Bible, flip way back. Numbers is like the fourth book of the Bible. We're going to kind of jump around a couple of different places. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So jump, jump back a little bit. And it's really kind of cool. You're going to start to see, and if you didn't know this, Jesus is just all over the Old Testament. It just becomes blatantly obvious when you start looking for it. And this is one of those stories that is really kind of cool. I'm going to summarize about three chapters. And I told my family, for the sake of time, I'm going to try to do it in about a minute, maybe less. So my dad, the old auctioneer, would be proud of the speed that I'm going to share this. So you can go back and watch it again if it goes a little bit too quickly. But in a sense, here's what's happening. There's a story about the king of Moab, and his name was Balak. He was afraid of the Israelites and all that was happening. So he thought he would call on this seer, S-E-E-R, whose name was Balaam. And he was going to call on him and he was going to bring him in to pronounce curses over the Israelites. Because he thought, there's no way I can handle what they're doing. So I'm going to bring Balaam in and pronounce curses over the Israelites. Well, first of all, Balaam, he didn't want to go, and then he told him to go back. He wouldn't do it for all the tea in China and all the gold in the temple and all that kind of stuff. Well, then he sent more important people, and he eventually convinced him, but God said, you can go, but only if you listen to me. Well, he went without listening to God, and here's where the story gets really fun. Here's where if you are, this is such a crazy story. I love this story. This is where he's riding along on his way to go and make these pronouncements, uh, and he's his donkey stops. And if you're reading along, in Numbers 22, verse 23, the donkey that he's riding sees an angel of the Lord, and he stops. And Balaam kind of whips the donkey, gets angry, and then it happens again. The donkey stops. And then it happens a third time, and the donkey stops. And if you look... This is where it gets really cool. If I look in chapter 22, verse 28, it says, Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And then Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. All right, let's stop for just a second. Let's just get real. If I'm riding a donkey, which in and of itself would be an interesting sight, if that said donkey starts talking to me, I'm probably not saying that. <laughs> you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The story goes on. The donkey says to Balaam, does anybody else in their mind hear Eddie Murphy's voice coming out? <laughs> Whoa, I, th this just kind of scares me to think. So the donkey says to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden? Turn the page. I have, I have always been in the habit of doing this. No, he said. What an interesting conversation. I mean, can you imagine whoever wrote this down, hearing this story, if they weren't there, it's like, are you kidding me? What, that is just odd. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he too saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. So the rest of that story then goes on, and he pronounces three different blessings rather than curses. And here's where it becomes important to us as far as the story. If you flip over another couple pages or so to chapter 24, during the fourth message that Balaam is pronouncing, Chapter 24, verse 17, it says this, I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. Get this, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheath. That's a proclamation of what is to come. But that's not the only place. Flip over several different chapters. Flip over to Isaiah 60. Flip over to Isaiah 60, and we can see once what Isaiah is pronouncing. Verses 1 through 6, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and the thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Verse 3, Nations will come to your light. What did we just see with the Magi? Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your glory. Jump down to verse six. And what do they bring? They will come bearing gold and incense. Do you see it? Do you see it that nations will come bringing gifts? They'll come to the light of the sun. They'll be drawn to the light. God is doing this. God's the one that's making this happen. He's the one drawing them into a son. He's the one that wants them to bring glory. So now we see it in our story in Matthew, that exact same thing. The nations are coming. They're drawn to the light. Isn't it interesting in Matthew, which is written primarily to a Jewish audience, that Matthew makes a big deal out of the fact that the first people who were worshiping the king are from the east. They are the ones who come to worship a Jewish Messiah. And more importantly, He's not just a king for the Jews. He's a king for all peoples. So if we look at our text again, verse 2 and 3. And he asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So they came to Jerusalem Certainly where you would expect a king to be born, capital type city, big city, lots going on, palaces, all that kind of stuff. They, that's where they expected to see a king. And they start asking questions, but obviously nobody really knows what's going on. And Herod, I mean, we could spend a whole sermon talking about Herod. What a, he's just kind of a, well, he's just that. He's like every version of a Disney cartoon or animated movie of a bad person you could wrap up into Herod and then some. Summarize, I mean, obviously he's a world leader. 40 years prior to that, Herod was set up by Rome to be the king over Judea. And he was the ruler. He was a vicious, bloodthirsty tyrant. He was jealous. He was, uh, anybody who threatened his reign, he would get rid of. Including his wife, his son, his son-in-law, and many others. So isn't it kind of interesting that when he learns that there is a king of the Jews that has been born, he's troubled and agitated. Some may even say he's terrified. I'm going to put another slant on it. Herod was intimidated by Jesus. And the insecurity that rises up in him becomes obvious 
And all of Jerusalem was upset because we know kind of the rest of the story, what he does to the, the babies in the baby boys in Bethlehem later on. But you can see why, as it says here in our text, where the rest of Jerusalem was upset, if he's going to freak out on you, who knows what he's going to do to your families. Then in verse 4, he calls together and he assembles the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Again, I think there's an important thing that we maybe need to, well, not maybe, let's just make a point of. Herod's intimidated by Jesus. The religious leaders were just indifferent to him. They had read the passages from the Old Testament, but they were just indifferent. That struck me this week. Because again, as I've said many times when I've stood here and spoken with you guys and shared as a family, I think one of the dangers, one of the beauties of living in Pella, one of the beauties of being a part of this church family, one of the beauties of all of this can also be one of the greatest dangers is that we just have a tendency sometimes to take things for granted, particularly that a king has been born. Then you go on in verses 5 and 6 in our text where Matthew shares a quote from the Old Testament, Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, if you were listening carefully, you would notice that it's not just Matthew is bad at copying. There are some very distinct differences, some very pointed things that I think Matthew is trying to make as he compares that Old Testament passage. And I think there's some importance for us to pay, pay attention to this morning. The first thing is, Matthew drops the, the phrase from Ephrathah. But he adds, in the land of Judah. So today when you go home, you can do the flipping back and forth thing to see that I'm telling you the truth. So why does he do that? Why is that important to Matthew as he writes his gospel account? Matthew is trying to tie Jesus to the line of Judah. If you look in our passage three times in verse 1, in verse 5, and verse 6, 1, 5, and 6, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is from Judah. The line of Judah. The rightful line of the king. And then he's making a point of where Jesus is born, Bethlehem, which is also where King David was born. Second thing that's a little bit different is that in Matthew, it says, by no means least among you rulers of Judah. Compare that to in Micah where it says, though you are small among the clan. Basically, Matthew is just making the point that a small, insignificant village, Bethlehem, is becoming an important place, an important place in the story of redemption. Then at the end of the Matthew quote, in the verse 6, it says, ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That line really isn't even a part of the Micah until three or four or five verses later, he talks about shepherding. But I think Matthew wants to make a point. I think he's linking us back to a scripture back in 2 Samuel 5, verse 2. 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, which is where God makes this promise 
to David. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And here's the promise. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So I think the picture that Matthew's trying to paint for us is that the king is born in Bethlehem, and he'll be a good shepherd who shepherds his people back to God. He's the one who will lead the flock. He is the one who will save the people. He's the one who will be crowned king over all creation. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Word of Life. He's Emmanuel, God amongst us, and his name is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King over all. If you go back to verse seven, then Herod called the Magi secretly and called them out from the exact time that the, and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. Verse eight says, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go ahead, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go to worship him. Now we know that's a lie. We know the rest of the story. We know that's a lie. He had no intent on worshiping the king. He was petrified by someone who may take over. He wants Jesus dead. Then in verse 9, that's the first time that we see the star move. Supernaturally, some may say, I happen to think that it is. God is leading the wise men to the exact house. Then verse 10 and 11. I'm actually going to switch versions on you or translations. I love the ESV translation of this, these two verses. It says this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My junior high English teacher would not be very proud of that sentence, but I think that says everything in a nutshell. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew's just piling on the joy language. I like to think of it like this. The joy is literally exploding off the page. They saw a child, and they bowed and worshiped. Ha! <laughs> That was it for me as I studied this. That's the whole picture. What a picture. Magi from the east. Men from the east bowing down to a small child, not some prince, not somebody with lots of glitz and glamour, not with guards standing by, not where you had to ask permission to come in to see him. None of that. He was a babe. Pagan astrologers prostrate in adoration is an absolutely stunning scene. Yesterday, our little kids left the house, so those that were left, we watched a couple movies and quite honestly took a couple naps. And we, went, we watched this movie. It's kind of an updated version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. That's actually quite a, it's really pretty good for those of you who want to find a different version of it. It was really kind of a cool version. But my mind wandered. It wandered here. 
Because the gist of what happens is obviously the Grinch steals Christmas, he steals all the lights, he steals all the presents, he steals all the joy, or at least that's his goal. It got me thinking. Would I still worship if all the glitz and glamour and French silk pie and goodies and peanut clusters, if you were here with me, you know that's a, if all that was gone, and all I had was King Jesus, would I still worship? What would Christmas be like without all the other stuff? Kind of an interesting perspective, I think, for us to take. Then as you move into verse 11, and again, there's a lot of different scholars, a lot of different conversations about the literal meaning or what is the biblical meaning of the three different gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that today, Summarizing, gold to a lot of people basically represents Jesus' royalty. Gold is for kings. The point is, Jesus truly is the sovereign king and the Lord of lords. Frankincense, throughout scriptures, we see it used quite often in worship. Perhaps it's prophetically representing Jesus as our great high priest. Or another way to put it is it's symbolic of Jesus' deity. And then the myrrh, it may represent Jesus as our suffering savior or his humanity. I think all of that leads to my big takeaway. Just like the wise men or the magi in our story, I think we are called not just to acknowledge him, my friends, we know, we've heard multiple times, even the demons acknowledge him. I think this morning we're called to worship and to adore him because he is worthy to be worshiped. One of the things I've been thinking about in my own thoughts is, do I worship him for what he's done? Absolutely. But I also think it's important that we just worship him for who he is. He's the king of kings. He's worthy of our delight. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy to be loved and exalted. So here we are. Day after Christmas, for some life sort of starts to head back into normal. Jesus is the king. So my question to me and to you is, would you know it by how we live tomorrow morning? Would you know it by our conversations? Would you know it by the things that we talk about that make us afraid? That he is the king. I think Matthew's intention is incredibly clear. Come and see the king. Come and see the king. And because he's king, I think we're called to joyfully offer our life as a worshiper. And to rejoice exceedingly over this king. Here's my prayer. That today you don't just hear these words, because trust me, I've sat where you're sitting. 
Easy to do a lot of head nodding today, and by 10.15, you're off to the next routine. The next part of our crazy, busy schedule. Today, my prayer is that you consciously lay your life down before this king as a sacrificial offering. Lay down your plans, your dreams, your hopes, your relationships, everything. Everything you have, everything that you are, lay them at the feet of the king. You know, a lot of people have a lot of traditions at Christmas and different things that they read. I've added this to my own personal tradition because the last couple of years I've had the opportunity to speak during our Christmas Eve service and some of this is gonna sound really familiar. There's an old, old sermon that I'm not gonna read all of it, but I've kind of condensed some things for me and it's by S.M. Lockridge, an African-American pastor. He is so passionate about it, so I'm gonna read it to us one more time. If you get nothing else, I hope these words just ring in your heart, in your ears as you go forward tomorrow and the next day, the next crisis, the next thing that you have doubt, I want these words to ring out clearly. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He forgives the sinners. He delivers captives. His promise is sure. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. And you can't live without him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. He's the risen Savior. My friends, do you know him? That's bottom line. That's the most important. Do you know that king? So I'm going to ask again. Is that how you're living your life? Is that what you're banking on? Is that where you're putting all of your trust? He is the king. Kind of summarizing, it's interesting to me, the beginning of Matthew, it's all about come and see. Come and see what God has done. Come and see his amazing love. The light of the world has come to us. The king of kings has arrived. And if you compare that to the end of Matthew, what's that all about? Go and tell. Make disciples of all the nations. I'm going to invite the choir to come on back up and take their place. So if you want to summarize just real quickly what I've been trying to share, what God's put on my heart, Really just a couple of easy, simple little things. Nothing real deep or heavy about them. First one is this, joyfully offer your life as a worshiper. That's the gift every one of us can bring. And for some of us, that may start 
with a simple act of coming and having communion after the service. Or you prayerfully thank him for what he's done, thank him for what he, who he is, and maybe offer your life as a sacrifice while you share a moment with Jesus. Second thing then is for us to each and everyone in our own way, however he's gifted you, to go and passionately, passionately spend your life as a witness. Will you pray with me? Oh Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the king, our king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Holy Spirit, right now I pray that you will open our eyes that each one of us can see and savor all that you are. Holy Spirit, awaken in us an understanding of your beauty, your splendor, your power, and your majesty. Holy Spirit, show us that you are worthy to be worshiped as the King. Amen.